All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think we can go ahead and get started tonight. So, um, can't go to room 13, defumigating or something. I, don't, I didn't catch the story. Uh, nobody tells me anything. But they moved all the chairs in here, so here's where we are. So, hopefully next quarter we'll be back into more comfortable environments. It's so uh, cavernous and echoey. So, if you... Old people who chose to sit in the back who can't hear me, that's on you, and there's plenty of seats you can move up if you wanted to, but I can only speak so loud, so if the echo makes it hard for you to hear, that's, that's a you problem, all right, not a me problem. Uh, we are in 2 Corinthians. We finished chapter 1 last week, so let's do chapter 2, and maybe we'll cover all of chapter 3, but we'll definitely, I think, get into some of chapter 3 at least uh, tonight. So we only just broke into the book, we only just started it, and we haven't even really gotten a sense of everything that this book has to cover. We talked a little bit last week with some introductory comments about what Paul's doing here. It's probably the most different of all the books that he wrote, um, just because so much emotion is in it. There's always a little bit of emotion. You can, you can almost tell when you're reading it when Paul is really getting passionate and worked up about something. But usually it's more with excitement. Like you can tell as he's building to a point. He's, he's been making his points. He's building to his conclusion. You can sense his excitement as he gets closer and closer. He's racing to that big therefore. So you can kind of feel his excitement sometimes in his writing. But this is the most downbeat and, and frustrated and hurt that he is in all of his books. So that really comes out here. We only just did one chapter. So we haven't really gotten a sense of everything. We got maybe a taste of... Uh, his mental state, his emotional state, but as to what he's even writing this letter for, it's not just to say, you guys hurt my feelings. That is not what this letter is about. There's some doctrinal stuff to be discussed, and some of those seeds are planted here uh, in this chapter. But we left off at the end of chapter 1 with Paul talking about um, part of why he has not been able to come back to Corinth in time. He's wanted to get back there. He's wanted to check up on them, and he's been delayed for various reasons. And in his delay, false teachers have crept in and kind of um, taken root in the congregation and spread a lot of false things about Paul, partially why he's writing this letter to uh, answer those arguments. So he's been talking toward the end of chapter 1 and going in here into chapter 2 about why he has been delayed and what's been going on with all of that. Um, so that's where we pick up. Look at 2 verse 1. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. There's obviously a lot more to be said. This is just the beginning of the thought. But what he's saying here is, Basically how he was ending the previous chapter, saying it's a good thing that I was delayed. It's a good thing that I wasn't there as early as I intended to be there because I would have found you in a state not fit to receive me. I would have had to come there with anger and with divine wrath uh, that I have to be exercising. So um, I told myself that I'm not going to come to you with heaviness, that I didn't want to go there if it was going to be under negative circumstances. Now that could be heaviness could be applied to him that he didn't want to go there with a lot of burden on him about what he might have to do to punish the church. It could be heaviness on them that I didn't want to go there and find you guys, Corinth, in a heavy state, in a, a, a state of heavy burdens and things. Either way, he knew for a period of time after chapter 1 was written and before he was going to arrive in Corinth originally, in that gap, he knew they had not yet put it all together, figured it all out, applied everything he wrote in chapter 1. Maybe there was some stubbornness, maybe there was some resistance to applying what he wrote. Goodness knows it wouldn't be the first church that stubbornly refused to apply what the Bible said. So he says, it's a good thing I didn't show up quicker than I did. I'm delayed, I, haven't sh I still haven't shown up yet, but it will happen eventually. But I didn't want to go there with heaviness. Verse 2, for if I make you sorry, who is he then that would make me glad? But the same which is made sorry by me. 
Paul is not a person, he says this in Romans 1, not ashamed to preach the gospel of Christ. He is not a preacher who would ever change the message to accommodate his audience. Any preacher who will do that is not a preacher worth his salt, not a preacher worth listening to. So Paul is not a guy who's going to um, water it down or make it sound like something else or him and haw or beat around the bush or ignore a topic that needs to be talked about or talk about things that are not scriptural. Paul's going to say it as it is and just as it is. He's going to go into that a little bit more in this chapter as we go down the line. But he says here, if what I said made you upset, he, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want what he says to make his audience upset because usually... Not the bad kind of upset. The right kind of upset breaks your heart, moves you to obey. That's great. You want that. But he doesn't want to preach a message or teach a message or write a letter and have the audience just feel bad about it and, and really be ashamed and not ever do anything about it. That doesn't profit anybody. And also, he likes these people. He doesn't want to hurt their feelings. He doesn't want them to be upset. And he writes this beautiful statement here in the middle of the verse. If I make you guys upset, then who can make me happy? As if to say... You guys are who I count on to lift my spirits. That's how much he loves this congregation. Just planting that seed for when he tells them later, and you broke my heart. I, I rely on you guys to encourage me. I rely on you guys to give me uplift and to, po to positively help me along all of my struggles, a lot of which he'll mention later in this book. So if I make you upset, then who can make me glad? The same which is made sorry by me. I don't want to be the one to make you guys upset. But if I teach the truth, and it does, so be it. Verse 3. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I come I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. The purpose of this letter is, among other things, to reassure them of his commitment to them. That is what, if you bullseye it, that is what's being challenged by these false teachers. Paul does not care about you. Paul doesn't uh, want to tell you what is true. Paul is, is lying to you. Don't trust Paul. He, they're trying to drive a wedge between Paul and the brethren. So he wants to reassure them that despite his delay in coming to Corinth, if he came there now, immediately, if he showed up like Jesus, just popped in the room, then there would be little to rejoice over. Sorrow would abound. Keep in mind, his critics are saying about him, there's probably still critics there in Corinth as this letter is being read aloud, Probably still people saying, if he didn't want to hurt us, he wouldn't have written such an angry letter. That would be 1 Corinthians. And that was an angry letter at times. He really got onto them in that book. But Paul would say, I have to teach the truth. And if you receive it harshly, well, sometimes you need to have a harsh letter. Sometimes you need to have a stern rebuke. It has to be done sometimes. That You do it because you love them, but you're still sorry to see them hurt by it. Um, still, I think Paul's plan was to write that 1 Corinthians letter really rebuke them harshly, let it sting for a minute, and then eventually when he gets there, everything mellows, everything's calm, they can receive him with love. He did not anticipate false teachers coming in and throwing a monkey wrench and all of that. Verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Next time you study or read 1 Corinthians, first one, Read it knowing that the author, in parts, wrote it brokenhearted, wrote it upset, wrote it... You ever been so angry you cry? Not because you're just an emotional wreck and you can't control anything, but because that's just the... It's like the spectrum of the wheel of emotions. You go from frustration to anger to sadness. Sadness and anger are not opposites. One flows into the other. You get so angry you get upset and it comes out in tears. Paul says, that was me while I wrote 1 Corinthians. Think about that when you read verse, chapter 13 and what he says about love. We, we read 1 Corinthians 13 
like I'm standing like the preacher does with the bride and groom right here, reading it as this beautiful little ode to what love is. Paul was writing it to say, this is what you guys are lacking. This is how you guys are spitting in the face of love. Love bears all things and you guys aren't. Love believes all things and you guys don't. Love uh, endures all things and you guys can't seem to do that. And he's pleading with them. He's, he's screaming and he's crying as he writes that and the other things that he says. So look at, he, in fact, he says four different um, emotional states that he's in as he wrote 1 Corinthians. And probably he's still in those uh, emotional states. First, he says he wrote it with much affliction. He was in the middle of persecution. Second, he wrote it with anguish of heart. The word anguish means anxiety. Same person who wrote to the Philippians, and he says, don't be anxious, was anxious. That's not hypocrisy. That's an acknowledgement that he struggles with it too. Third, he says he wrote it with tears, as we said. And fourth, he wrote it with love. In fact, my Bible says abundant love. Um, into verse four, the love that I have more abundantly. Anybody have a different word there? Abundant love. Abundant love, same word, everybody? Depth. Huh? Depth of, my love. Depth of my love. The overflowingness. If it was a well, you'd never reach the bottom and the water would never run out. The love just keeps pouring out that I have for you. Verse five. But if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. His letter was hard, but not mean-spirited. It was pointed, but not without compassion. It was stern, but not loveless. His purpose for writing was born out of this Christian love, this affection, this family spirit kind of love that he felt for them. That kind of love is a cure for sin. That kind of love motivates a sinner to repent. If you remember, the first big problem mentioned in 1 Corinthians after like division as a general idea, is this guy who has been committing this terrible sexual sin and the brethren are treating it like it's no big deal. And Paul says, you should have already withdrawn from that person and you are acting like it's no big deal. And that was his first real shot across the bow at what was going on there. Um, and he says, if anyone was stirred up by my letter, if, if my letter caused anybody to be grieved, I'm not upset about that, except just a little. In the same amount that you would be when you have to spank your kids and it hurts to see them upset that you spank them, but you're glad that you disciplined them because you know it'll do some good, that kind of thing. I, I'm not grieved you're hurt, except a little bit. The kind of human side of it is. But um, my goal is not to, to be some burden to you, to be the, the reason why you run away from God. Verse 6, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. I think this is talking about that guy from 1 Corinthians 5, that man who engaged in sexual sin and then treated it like it was no big deal and the church blew it off like it was no big deal. And if you don't think that happens, maybe not that particular sin, but a sin like that made public, which brings shame to the whole congregation and the whole church just try to sweep it under the rug and blow it off and hope that time will make people forget. And it will, but God does not forget. And that reputation will be ruined until it is made better. And, and lots of churches just blow off things like that. And they make a bad thing worse. And that's what was going on here. And Paul said what had to be done had to be done. And that was withdrawing fellowship from somebody. It's not kicking them out of the church. It's withdrawing yourself from fellowship with that person. Because that person has spit in the eye of God and of God's grace. He wants to sin and not do anything about it. We all make mistakes. But this guy wanted to sin and not repent. And the church, by embracing that, was preaching to the world, you can sin and not repent. Well, how can you preach the gospel that way? Because half the gospel is you have sinned and you must repent. And the second half is what to do about it. But if you're going to have the attitude of you, you, you guys over here must repent, but here's our brother. He sinned. He doesn't need to repent. 
That's hypocrisy of the highest order. And nobody's going to listen to a hypocrite. You will listen to all kinds of people in the world. But nobody universally will listen to an obvious hypocrite. And that's what this church was doing. So Paul says, you've got to back off from this guy. You've got to leave him alone, separate from him. Hopefully so that he loves the Lord enough to feel that isolation and be shamed by it to want to come back. But this, this brother's sin brought about no response. He should have been, my Bible says, um, such a man, sufficient to such a man was the punishment that he told him to do. The word means penalty or even censure. Like to censure a person, to publicly rebuke and take action against that one who had sinned so brazenly. Verse 7. So that, contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him. I want to read verse 6 again and flow into verse 7. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So that, contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Here's what happens, usually, uh, in a congregation. Someone sins very publicly, doesn't repent very publicly, and the church blows it off. All right, Now the whole church is in trouble. Also what happens, someone sins very publicly, the church has a really hard-nosed preacher or really hard-nosed eldership and doesn't appreciate love and grace and mercy or compassion and is all about hellfire and brimstone and just wants to see that guy punished, wants to see that guy suffer, wants to see that guy kicked out of the church. And so that's the steps they take. And then that guy tries to do right and that church won't take him back. Also happens. What's supposed to happen is you punish this person out of love. Now, you're not the principal of the high school, okay? God has withdrawn his fellowship from this person. You're recognizing that. You're following God. You're backing off from this person. We'll call that, in the summary, punishment, okay? Because Paul does. So you do that, and then when he repents, your heart must break. Why? Because what does the heart of God do when a sinner repents? Heaven rejoices. What did the father of the prodigal son do? His heart broke. He burst forth and he ran to embrace his son again when he came home. Well, if that's God's response, it should be my response. Instead, many brethren act like the other brother in that parable, which God also condemns. So here's this guy who withdraw fellowship from him. He repents. Next has to come forgiveness. Verse 7. You ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. Oh, but we don't want to show everybody else that we are, we are okay with his sin. You're not. That's why you withdrew fellowship from him. Now you need to show everybody else you're okay with sinners who repent. Because that should be all of us. Lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with an abundance and over amount overflowing too much to handle amount of sorrow. What happens if he repents and you don't forgive him? <coughs> so, then you're condemned. But what happens to him? He stills without a church family. Now he thinks nobody loves him. And now it gets worse. Verse 8. Wherefore I beseech you what does your Bible say at the beginning of verse 8? Thank you. Yeah, I beg you. Same apostle, say, urge, your says? Yeah. Same apostle who in a minute is going to really lay down the law about his authority, his standing in the place of Christ as an apostle. But here he puts himself in a humble servant kind of position where he says, I am begging you people. I beseech you. I urge you as pleadingly as I can that you would confirm your love unto him. Do you love that brother? They, at first, they loved him the wrong way because they were tolerating his sin. They were embracing him in his sin. Okay, Now he wants to repent. Prove you love him the Christ-like way. You love him enough to bring him back. You love him enough to forgive him. Love is not, despite the false doctrine, love is not about emotion. Christianity is not a religion of emotion. 
You will have emotion in life, whether you're a Christian or not. There's always going to be emotion. And if you're a Christian, your emotions, if you are a forward-looking Christian, if you're a Christian with perspective, your emotions will usually be positive. But you'll have bad days. You'll have bad emotions. But generally speaking, you have perspective to have positive emotions. That's great. That's good. Your religion is not tethered to emotions. Christ is not calling you to be emotional. Christ calls you to be a servant. That's a doing person, not just a feeling person. A doing person. So Paul uses this phrase here. He's going to use it in a few chapters when he talks about contribution. Prove you love. Do you love that brother? Prove it. Forgive him. You can't just say it and not do it. Do you love God? Prove it. Contribute to him, he'll say later on. Actions speak louder than words. Abraham loved God. Anybody want to dispute that? Abraham loved God. How do you know Abraham loved God? Because he put Isaac on an altar, right? How do you know Jesus loves you? Because he put Jesus on, oh, God loves you because he put Jesus on an altar. How do I know you love God? Paul doesn't say, confirm your love toward him in the sight of God. He says, confirm your love toward him, period. Let us all see, prove it to me, prove it to them, prove it to each other, and prove it to God <coughs> that you love him. Actions speak louder than words. Verse 9. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, so that I might see that proof, whether you be obedient in all things. He previously wrote to the church, telling them to withdraw from this sinful brother. And here he writes again, telling them to repent, if he, uh, to forgive if he repents. So this, is, this letter is about holding their feet to the fire. It's about making sure they do what they're supposed to do. This is what preaching is. This is the ugly, messy, hard part of preaching. It's not just about preaching the fun ones that make all the brethren go, Oh, that was such a fun sermon. Those are nice. You try to sprinkle those in. Sometimes you have to preach the ones that make the brethren not want to come shake your hand. After it's over. Verse 10. To whom you forgive anything, here's the authority of an apostle. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgive it I in the person of Christ. That last phrase is the critical one. I am in the person of Christ, Paul says. I, Matthew Martin, am not. Now, I am teaching by authority. That the authority that I'm teaching with is found in the authoritative book, right? I didn't just, I mean, yeah, I've written things about the book, but it's about the book. I didn't just write a book of doctrine that I am teaching. I didn't just write a book that I'm saying, this is what you're going to go by. This is what you're going to live by. If I do that, then I am guilty of adding to what God has already written or changing what God has already written or taking out what God has already written. Paul is not just some guy writing some letter that sounded good that people just thought, we should all do this. This is good stuff. And that's how the Bible came to be. No. Paul was a person standing in the place of Christ. He ascended into heaven. He's not here on earth anymore. For three years, he walked and talked and preached. For three years, he showed the people he was of God. For three years, what he said was law, either in effect or to be put into effect. And then he went away. He's still alive. He's still reigning. But we don't see him and we don't hear him. So how do we know his law? How do we know what else he wants us to do? Who is his ambassador? Paul. And Peter, James, John, and so forth. They stand in his place so that when they speak, it is as if Christ was speaking. I can't say that. Neither can you. That's why I'm hesitant to call myself an ambassador of Christ. I, I appreciate the sentiment. I know what people say when they say that. All they mean is, I'm a messenger boy. I go on behalf of somebody. Well, that's fine. We're all messenger boys and girls. But an ambassador is an authoritative position. You speak instead of. You speak in place of. You speak and it's just as if. Jesus had spoke. That's Paul. That's Matthew 16, 19. Somebody read that. Go back to Matthew 16, 19. 
Listen to what the Lord said to his apostles. Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the key to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I am giving you, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, you 12 minus Judas 11 plus Matthias 12 plus Paul 13. And that's it. It ends there. You don't get John, Paul, and Benedict, and, and all the other ones. You don't get them. they just guys in funny clothing. Peter, James, John, Jude, Matthew, Bartholomew, down the line, ending with Paul. That's it. To them was given authority. Whatever they bind, whatever laws they make, is a law of heaven. Whatever they loose, whatever they say, it used to be bad, but now you can. You used to can't eat pork, and now you can. It's been decided. It's the, the grammar, the construction of it sounds like they're calling the shots and Jesus is just backing them up. But what it's saying is there's a tethered link between the decisions they make and what heaven has already decided. Whatever you loosed has already been loosed. Whatever you bind has already been bound. It's just you're telling people about it. You're being the authoritative ones. Who else could say don't eat pork? Nobody except for Moses who, who gave that law to the people on behalf of God. So who else could undo that? You need a new Moses. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is gone. His ambassadors now stand in his place. Now look at this. Read verse 10 again. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive. You can flip that. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And Paul's going to be the one in this case to make sure that comes to pass. So if I forgave anything, to whom I will forgive it. For your sakes I forgave it, standing in the person of Christ. Forgiveness or not, withholding forgiveness, giving forgiveness, that's a God thing that Paul gets to carry out. And all of this is done... So that we can be aware of who's in the shadows trying to undermine us. We do all this forgiving and restoring and helping our brethren because we are fully aware that there is a being out there who does not want us to be forgiving. There's a being out there who wants to see the fallen away, the, the um, withdrawn from fallen away. And who is that? Verse 11. We do all that lest Satan should take advantage of us, should get an advantage over us. We are not ignorant of his devices. There are no links that Satan will go. As much as he is allowed to do, he will do. He does not take an off day. He does not have a holiday. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't faint. He doesn't give up. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't just write someone off. He might leave you alone for a little while, let it cool down. It will come back twice as strong. He will approach you from every angle. He will use his demons against you. He will use himself against you. He will use the world itself against you that is per permeating with his sin. So he'll come after you passively. When you see a billboard in Las Vegas promoting free sex, or maybe not free, but sex with women that you can just pay a, a cheap amount for and you can have, and you see a woman walking on the street and it's just there for the taking, that's not the devil but that's the devil's influence in that form. So passively, he's after you. Actively, he will come after you. How do I know actively? As terrifying as that thought is, how do I know that the devil himself and his demon angels, how do I know they are actively coming after us? Because right here it says it. He says he is taking advantage of us. Not passive. That's active. We do these things lest we make ourselves susceptible to the devil's attack. Like a general who's trying to size up the weakness of an army. We don't want to have him taking advantage over us to find a weakness that he can exploit. That's an active worker. You better believe the devil's after you. That's why Paul's always pushing unity so, so much in the church. You know, humble, unified. If you have a little break or you have cliques in a church, 
Satan's doing that, that's his, you know, that's a wonderful thing for him because he gives it little cracks. Yep. So that's why it's so important. We'll study that in Philippians a lot too. So. That's exactly right. What is there's a there's a military term for that when you split your army or you split the army you're fighting. What's that called? Huh? Say it. Yeah, divide and conquer. We use that phrase incorrectly. Like we'll say, we have this big group. Let's split up and we can win. We'll divide and conquer. Alexander the Great invented divide and conquer. And he didn't split his army. He split the army he was fighting. Because if you can split them down the middle and you can separate them into two groups, then you can split that group and split that group and split them off until you stabby stabby with the big long pokey things. You're dividing the enemy. Unity is the message of the gospel. Unity is the message Paul's been preaching here because if we're not united, we're divided. If we're divided, we fall. Abraham Lincoln. comment to add to that because that's perfectly said that's exactly right exactly all right verse 12 furthermore when i came to troas to preach christ's gospel and a door was opened to me of the lord dot 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 that's only the first half of a statement but uh this door referenced here first corinthians in uh, end of the book 16 like verse 9 or 8 or so uh, he was talking about i'll be with you soon but i have this places i want to hit first on my way there i'm going to head to Tro troas troas Troy as Troy as is named after Troy, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer's writing, the fall of the Battle of Troy and all that. The Romans believed in history, the mythology that the um, people who left Troy founded Rome. And so it was a very influential city and a very influential region, the region of Troy itself, very important there. So Paul says, I had this opportunity, a door was open to me to go preach the gospel. It's very influential, a Roman influential place. So if the gospel can go there, think how it can spread, you know. So I had that chance to do that. I'm not going to miss that. That's the Holy Spirit guiding me to do that. Paul knows that because he's inspired himself. So I'm going to take it. Well, doing so delayed his return to Corinth. But look at what he's saying. You guys are all upset that I was late getting there, but you guys are already converted. The world over here hasn't heard it. Like uh, it was my mentor, Bob Turner, who said once, the, everybody has a chance to hear the gospel once before you hear it twice. So hear these Corinthians. Paul writes a letter, says, get your house in order. Meanwhile, these people don't even have a house. I'm going to help them. And they have the audacity to listen to these liars say, Paul doesn't care about you because he hasn't come to see you lately. Get over yourself. Verse 13. Well, let's read 12 and 13 together. When I came to Troas to preach gospel, the gospel, a door was opened me of the Lord. When that happened, 13, I had no rest in my spirit because I could not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them in Troas, I went from there into Macedonia. Titus is usually, well not usually, often he's with Paul. When he writes his letters, he'll say, you know, Titus says hello at the end of a lot of his letters. And Silas and so forth too. But Titus wasn't with him here. And it seems to be the case. I, I'm, maybe I'm reading into it, but it seems like in this text that Titus had some affinity and connection to the church at Corinth as well. And perhaps uh, he was going to be... A guy who would help Paul get word. House, are you serious? No, that's not right. It's seven ten. What time does the bell ring? Should be seven twenty. Okay. All right. Let's all just calm down. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Anyway, that Titus wasn't there. He was maybe his guy that Paul was going to send to find word how's Corinth doing and get back to him, but he hadn't heard back from Titus. And he was really upset. Not that he's scared he doesn't know how to live without Titus or anything like that, but he wanted to have news about the church at Corinth. That's his way of telling them again, you thought I didn't care about you. I wanted to know how you were doing because I couldn't be there in person. Verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the, my Bible says, savor, not savior, the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Despite those circumstances, when he couldn't get to them in time and he didn't know how they were doing and he wasn't around Titus to hear about them and all that, um, he doesn't lose sight of the fact that he still has a job to do. He could have dropped everything and rushed to Corinth to check on him and he'd just find out it's just a house on fire that he's got to be angry at. But he's got work to do, so he's going to do that. So thanks be to God that he continued his ministry work and much good came from it. He triumphs in Christ. He makes manifest the savor, the sweet aroma of your mom baking chocolate chip cookies. And you're on the other side of the house and you just like the cartoons float in there on the smell of it. That's what the gospel is. It is this beautiful aroma that draws people to it. The savor of his knowledge, that is to say the knowledge of Christ that we are spreading to people. That we're spreading in every place. That savor, that sweet aroma of the gospel of Christianity. Verse 15. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. What is that aroma? What are the cookies in question? It is Christians. It is Christianity. Christianity, when it is done faithfully, when it is done right, it's not going to be done perfectly, but when it's done faithfully, when it's done righteously, when it's done in love and in love of the truth, Christianity is irresistible. Someone in the world who thinks they have everything they could ever want, who enjoys the pleasures of sin in the world, they will realize how hollow and how empty their life is when they, with open eyes and an honest heart, observe how content, how happy, how carefree, how peaceful, in spite of hardships, how satisfied a Christian is. And they will go to it like moths to a flame. That's not just platitudes. That's not just, you know, gentle, sweet talk that's not true. It has been proven. Christianity has thrived simply because of that for 2,000 years. We are that sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. In other words, I'm going to preach the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel by a faithful Christian is what smells so aromatic and delightful. And I'm going to preach that message. And whether you respond to it good or you respond to it bad, whether you obey the gospel or you reject the gospel, the cookies are baked and the house still smells good. You could be a stubborn child if you've had kids. Maybe you've had this happen. We've had to get on to them and then you bake the cookies. They're too stubborn to eat the cookies until you leave the room then they'll steal one. Right. So they don't want, I don't want a cookie because I'm angry. Okay, fine. Whether you get a cookie or not, they still smell delicious, don't they? And you're, you're eating one in front of them because it tastes really good. You know, the cookies are going to taste good whether you take them or not. The aroma is going to be sweet whether you accept it or reject it. Verse 16, to the one we are the savor of death unto death. It still smells good to God, but if you reject it, it will lead you to condemnation. To the other, it's a savor of life unto life. Like, like I say, if you're living the life right, if you're being faithful, if you're doing what you're supposed to do, then it will be this irresistible aroma to people. Right? Fine. True. Right. But if you're stubborn and you don't want to obey the gospel, you living that life to them is not going to help. I mean, despair the alternative. Don't not live the life. But you living the life isn't going to magically just change them. They have to want to change. And if they don't, that's to them. But to those who do, it is a savor of life unto life. And then he asked this question at the end of verse 16. And who is sufficient for these things? Who is qualified to be that person to preach that message that leads to life to some and death to others? Who's qualified to do that? He leaves that question unanswered until you get to chapter 3. 
17. For we are not as many other people do who corrupt the word of God, but we are of people who preach it with sincerity as of God in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Paul hints at this in Philippians when he talks about how there are people who preach wanting to see him done more harm done to him. And they preach in, uh, because of his sufferings, not in spite of them. And Paul says in Philippians, well, one way or the other, they're preaching the gospel, so I'll be happy. That's my solace in that. He alludes to that same idea here. There are some people, there are other people. We are not like those other people who corrupt the word of God, who preach a bastardized version of the word of God, preach a false version of the word of God. We preach the sincere, the true, the actual word of God. We preach it in the sight of God. And we speak in Christ as we do. That's your tease as we open to chapter 3, because we still have time, of these false teachers who are taking the message of the gospel and they are perverting it, twisting it, corrupting it to add on to it, graft onto it, Judaic principles that are not supposed to be there. Like if you're a Gentile, you must be circumcised. Or you must not eat certain kinds of foods. You must keep certain kinds of uh, customs and holidays and things. Those Judaizers, those Jewish Christians were binding that on their Gentiles. And Paul comes in after the fact. And he says, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to keep that feast. You don't have to not eat that food. Or you don't have to be circumcised. And those guys rejected that because they thought, that's of God. That's of Moses. You're rejecting things of God. So this war began. This tug of war began between Paul and these false teachers. So you get some sarcasm. We're not like those other guys who do that. You get some irony. Some, some of that emotion comes out as Paul talks about them. Verse 1, chapter 3. Do we, must I once more commend myself to you must i give you my credentials do i need to to the corinthians he says inform you of my resume resume do you need to know who i am and what authority i have do we the other apostles need as some do to provide epistles of commendation to you your bible might say letters of qualification what, what does your bible say there yeah, letters of recommendation. Do we need to provide letters of recommendation or letters of commendation from you or to you? Do we need men and people to provide our resume for us? No. No, I don't need, Paul says, to provide to you Corinthians my qualifications because you Corinthians, verse 2, are my qualifications. If anybody wants to know, is Paul really an apostle? He doesn't have to provide them a letter, though he has written a bunch of them. He doesn't have to provide a letter of recommendation, though God would write one if he had to. Instead, he says, look at the church at Corinth. Do you see all those miracles they're fighting over, squabbling over like children over toys? 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. Do you see them, what they're doing? Forget that they're doing it badly. Forget they're doing it with a bad attitude. Do you see that they can do those miracles? Where did they get those miracles? Paul gave them those miracles. You are my epistle. You're my letter of recommendation written on your hearts, known and read of all people. Anybody can know my qualifications because you've seen them and you've borne witness to them and you've in fact done them because I gave you the power to do that. They knew Paul personally. They witnessed his signs. They received gifts from his hand and they carried them out poorly at first, but still, principle, they carried them out. So I don't need to give you my resume. You're my resume, he says. Verse 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared, you are obviously made known, to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, written not in tablets of stone, but in the fleshly tablets of the heart. Double uh, entendre here. Double meaning in this text here. Because on the one hand, he's saying, 
you, you don't need me to provide for you a piece of paper with some scribbling on it that says, yes, Paul is someone you can trust. You can give him your money to give to Jerusalem and all those sort of things. No, he doesn't have to do that. They know he can be trusted because they've experienced his miracles firsthand, not with a document of paper, but with the actions of the heart and the things he's done. That's the one side. On the other side, you've got these false teachers who are saying, oh, yeah, Christianity is good, but you still need to keep this, this, and this, and this of Judaism. You need to keep this, this, and this covenant of the law of Moses. And so Paul uses that to say, the things that I gave you, the proof positive that I'm of God is not written on a tablet of stone like the old law was, but it's written on your heart like the new law is. Jeremiah 31, 31. Verse 4. And such trust we have through Christ to, my Bible says, God word. In other words, our preaching, our ministry, our qualifications or in the sight of God, done to God, done on behalf of God, rather, done in the, in the um, oversight of God through Jesus Christ. Not through Moses, not through him, falling over, not through Moses, not through, sometimes you think you'll pivot back, and sometimes you don't. Not through man, not through himself, not through the other apostles, not through public opinion, but through Christ to God. These Judaizers are trying to bind the old law. They're trying to say, we have our credentials, we have our qualifications through what Moses said. Paul is going to nail that to the wall in this chapter. If you try to rely on Moses for your doctrine today, you're going nowhere. Verse 5. That's the end of the chapter, so it may be next week, but verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. This is Paul. Very much like Paul. Paul, despite how boastful, and not boastful, that's the wrong word, despite how big and, and bombastic he is in his writing. He's a very booming, powerful speaker in his writing. Although by his own admission, if he was in person, he said he wasn't a very eloquent speaker. He was probably a very timid, meek kind of, maybe, uh, maybe a mumbly, jittery kind of a speaker. Not this big, booming voice. But if you read his letters, man, his letters were screaming. His letters were bold, uh, all caps. But he says, now I've got to write about myself. That's what he's been doing for the past four verses. And talking about how his qualifications come from God. He doesn't need other people to prove to him, or to prove to you that he is who he says he is. A lot of talking about himself. Paul does not like to talk about himself. So anytime he starts to swing that pendulum by the power of the Holy Spirit, i got to talk about me because they're criticizing me. He's quick to pull that pendulum back. God, let me not say I'm very important. I don't want them to think I'm important. So verse 5, I don't want you to think that I'm thinking something of me. I'm not thinking anything about me. My sufficiency, my qualifications, my ability to do what I do comes from God, not of me. That's just classic meek and mild Paul. I don't want you to think I think I'm hot stuff. I'm not. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of this. I'm the lowest of all these. I'm, I'm not worthy. That's Paul. When you murder enough people, as Paul did, you get a complex. And baptism doesn't wash away your complexes, I'm sorry to say. Verse 6. Who also made us able, which by the way is good. That means you can have them, you can keep them, and not lose your salvation. Whew, how about that. Verse 6. Who, God, who also made us able ministers of this new testament. This new covenant. Judaizers preaching the old, I'm bringing you the new. Not of the letter, that's the old law of Moses, but of the spirit, that's the new law of Christ. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. If you're trying to rely on the old law of Moses for your salvation, it will only lead you to death. And it can't bring you back. But if you follow Christ, Christ will lead you to death. Take up your cross and follow me. What do you think that means? Christ will lead you straight up the hill to Calvary. 
and then you will put your cross in the ground and you will put your hands on the boards and you'll feel those nails going into your wrists and your feet and you'll be a spear in your side and you will die and then he'll bring you back. Law can't do that. All the law can do is say, did you sin? I told you not to sin. Now you're dead. And you say, well, can you help me? No, all I can do is tell you. You're dead now. Law can't bring you back. Christ can bring you back. The spirit, the law, the letter kills. The spirit gives life. The old law puts you in death. The new law brings you back to life. Verse 7. But if the ministration of death, beginning of verse 7, what's your Bible say? Ministry. Ministry of death, yeah. If this preaching of an Old Testament salvation, which is an oxymoron, if this preaching of this old law of Moses covenant keeping, which only leads to death, which was written and engraved in stones, if it was glorious, then so shall the, then so the children of Israel could not steadfastly be it was so glorious that could not sorry, it was so glorious the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, but that glory was being done away. What is that talking about? All right, back up just a second. These Judaizers are holding up Moses. They're trying to pay lip service to Christ, but they're really trying to prop up Moses because Moses is the guy they know. Moses is the guy they've had for all these centuries. So they want to keep Moses. They want to keep those covenants. You've got to stay, be circumcised. I've never seen such a group as obsessed with a foreskin as the Judaizers. But you've got to stay circumcised, they say. And you've got to not eat these things. You've got to worship on these days and take the day off here and there. They're holding up Moses. And Paul says, let me tell you something about Moses. Okay? Moses came down from Sinai with the tablets of stone, and his face was glowing. In fact, radiating out of his face. The pores of his skin were bursting with the divine luminance because he was there with God, receiving those tablets of stone. They're important. They're, they're your history. They're given by God. But that glow, that radiance, slowly faded until it just wasn't there anymore. And Moses put a veil over his face covered his face so that the children of Israel would not watch that radiance slowly diminish. That's my five-minute bill, right? All right. What's up with that? What's Moses? What's Paul talking about? Why is he bringing this up? What is the relevance of the glow of God's presence diminishing? He's introducing it here. Keep going. If that old law, which had that glory that diminished, verse 8, how much shall this new law have a glory that doesn't diminish? How much more glorious is this new law? Here's this old law. Let's compare it to the new law. The old law was given by a man whose glory faded over time. This new law was given to you by Christ. Christ's glory will never fade. So it is more glorious. It is brighter and more uh, uh, brilliant and will never lose its luminosity. Verse 9. If the This kid sounds like it's done, but I'm not done until 730. <laughs> For the ministration of condemnation, it's glorious, but much more is the ministry of righteousness exceeding in glory. It's like the moon and the sun. In fact, that's the next verse. Look at verse 10. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. What? The moon. In about two hours, you could look up. I think the moon's out right now. You can look up. Is it? No? Fine. In, a, in a three weeks, whatever it'll be. The moon comes back. You can look up at night. It'll be glowing bright. Okay? The moon is bright. When it's a full moon, it's so bright you can walk around outside sometimes. It is glorious. But its glory is limited to the sun because the moon produces no light, right? It only reflects the light from the sun. So if there was no sun, the moon would have no glory. It's only because of the sun the moon has brightness and it's a limited brightness because when the sun comes out, holy cow, look how bright it is. The sun is the new law of Christ. 
The old law of Moses is the moon. It's bright, it's glorious, but its glory is, is faint. Its glory is diminished, its glory fades, and then comes the big bright sun. The thing which gave it its light in the first place. Old law was only radiant because it was pointing you to the new. So if you're trying to hold up the old law, look, every now and then it's bright enough at night you can walk around outside, but you watch it, you'll fall in a hole that you wouldn't have fallen into under the sunlight. So you try to follow the old law of Moses, you're going to fall in a hole, and it can't get you out. You follow the sun, ah, pun, pun, you follow the sun, and you'll be all right. Verse 11, for that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. <laughs> Seeing then that we have such a hope, we use great plainness of speech. This is why I preach what I preach, because there's not two options. You just have one option. Liars tell you you have two. Not like Moses. We don't preach Moses anymore, who put a veil over his face and that, so that the children of Israel could not look at the end of that which was abolished. No Jew, before Paul wrote these words, understood the meaning of the veil that Moses wore. He came down from Sinai holding tablets of stone. His face was burning like the sun. And everybody was like, holy cow, he's seen God. And then eventually it got better. And in the meantime, he put a veil over his face. And none of the Jews thought twice about it. Maybe they asked a rabbi every now and then, why did Moses wear a veil? Ah, it looked pretty. Nobody knew why. Nobody had an answer. And Paul says, I'll tell you why. Because if you had not seen Moses with the veil, and you saw the glory that came from being in the presence of God, and you saw it diminish, just nakedly diminish, without a veil to ease the transition, you might ask Moses, why do you have this glow about you? And Moses would have said, because I have received the law of God, and it is glorious. Well, then why, Moses, does the glory fade? And the answer would have to come because the power of this law fades too. And the people weren't ready to receive that. So he put a veil over his face until the whole glow had subsided. Okay, that's why Moses wore the veil. Because it represented the power of the old law. It represented the authority of the old law. It represented the glory of the old law. A glory which would not always be. Verse 14. But their minds were blinded. Willingly so, or not, unintentionally. Moses blinded them. I don't want you to know why I'm wearing this veil. Well, that was then. Now, in Paul's day, until this day, that same veil remains untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. There are still Jews and even some Jewish Christians who willingly put that veil over their eyes, refusing to see that the glory of the Old Testament has faded. They want to keep it. They want to prop it up, hold on to it, keep doing it. But its glory is gone. It has been done away in Christ. 15. Even to this day, when Moses is read, that veil is still on their hearts. They refuse to accept. They're following expired milk. It doesn't work anymore. 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, what's the it? The heart that has a veil over it. When that veil is uncovered and that heart turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away and they realize how much more glorious it is to follow Jesus than to follow Moses. Now the Lord... yes. That veil was cut in half. Yeah, you can make that connection at the temple, that veil that was split, to signify the way the holy place is open now. That's right. But there was the other veil that Moses wore on his face that they're now wearing on their heart because they don't want to obey God. You know, you can see the wisdom in God in picking Paul. Paul had the veil. That's right. The road on the road to Damascus, his veil was lifted, and all of a sudden now he understands, you know, I was wrong. And he realizes that all this Old Testament stuff was leading us to this. I know he has frustration trying to tell them because he 
you know, he, he understands yeah. how hard it was. Because he lived it. Right. Yeah. He was a leader in the group. It's just two verses. We'll, we'll pick it up next week because it segues into four. There's no chapter break. So we'll stop there and we'll pick up chapter four next week. Thanks, everybody.